Hello, my name is Kayla. And my name is Jackie, and this is season two of Living Two or More. A podcast where we interview people who are biracial and multiracial. Their stories are beautifully complex and unique. We were honored to receive them and so excited to share them with you. Thanks for listening and enjoy Living Two or More. Ellen is a biracial black therapist, social worker, and farmer. Combining her knowledge of the soothing properties found in plants with mental health modalities, she invites nature back into the therapeutic setting. When we interviewed Ellen, she was living in Portland, Oregon, but has since moved back to her hometown of Columbus, Ohio. We touch on themes of solidarity, cultural humility, and mental health. Enjoy. Ellen, thank you so much for being a part of Living Two or More. We honestly can't wait to talk to you and get to interview you. Um, We are starting the podcast with asking everyone the same question, um, and that question is to describe your experience of living two or more racial identities. Yes. Um, Well, first of all, thank you for having me. I've been really looking forward to this conversation all week. Um, And, you know, to answer your question, I would say my experience has been pretty difficult. Um, You know, so I identify as biracial Black or just Black. Um, You know, growing up, I always kind of felt like an alien, uh, like not really fitting in with white people, but also not being super accepted within other communities either. Um, So, you know, my dad was black and he hasn't been in my life since like 1998, but my mom is white. And so she primarily raised my sister and I, um, but I was like pretty heavily bullied by white folks for most of my life. Um, you know, I've received all kinds of questions around my racial identity or accusations um, by all types of different people. And it's really interesting because I feel like my experience has typically been that white people have questions and like just don't know how to take me in. But like, people within my black community always seem to be able to tell that I'm black. So it's like, what's wrong with y'all? Like, (laughs) it's not that hard. (laughs) Yeah. So how, how did you, how did you navigate those conversations and those questions growing up? Can you share a little bit more about that? Yeah. um, I feel like Growing up, um, especially when I was younger, I got a lot of questions around like, um, what are you was like a very common question or um, like, you don't look European (laughs) was a common one too. And I always was just honest, like, yeah, I'm black or, you know, I felt like I'd have to explain like, well, my dad is black and my mom is white. And so this, that, and the other. And, you know, people would make comments like, oh, you're so exotic then. And Mm -hmm. it's just really weird and creepy. Totally. (laughs) Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Do you you feel like you noticed? Because I feel like that's also been my experience, the what are you question, Mm -hmm. and then kind of like the long answer of that. Do you feel like that your journey 
um, through navigating those conversations changed over time in terms of like what you were willing to share or how you responded to, you know, exotification or exotifying? Totally. Yeah. I think for me, um, you know, back in the day when I was younger, I felt like I had to explain myself a lot more. Like I felt like I had to give like my full family history and Mm -hmm. uh, a disclaimer of like, yes, I understand. I don't look like what you might expect a typical black person to look like, but like, this is who I am. And I just felt like I caught myself over explaining to Mm -hmm. white people very often and wasting a lot of my energy there. And over time, and I think especially in the last several years, I kind of just, when people ask questions, I'm like, yeah, I'm black. And I just Mm -hmm. leave it at that. Mm -hmm. Um, I remember this, like a couple years ago, there was like a very specific example of that. And I'm happy to share if that's where we want to (laughs) go. Sure. Sure. Yeah, of course. Yeah. So this was like pre-pandemic. Um, if we can remember those days. (laughs) (laughs) Decades ago. Barely. (laughs) So I was living in California at the time. I'm originally from Ohio though. And I, I had only been in California for like a year and a half total because of Mm -hmm. just my experiences there. Mm -hmm. Um, But I had, I had gone to a wine tasting, like for the first time ever, you know, people are like, Oh, California have wine. And Mm -hmm. um, so we went, my partner and I had gone to this wine place and the landowner, the vineyard owner was white and just very uh, (laughs) colonial. Like he spent Mm -hmm. a lot of time, um, like giving us the history of how uh, white people basically like took over the U.S. And it was really Mm. bizarre. Um, I'm just sitting there like, what is going on? Until I realized (laughs) like he... I think this man thought I was indigenous. And so he was like, yeah, he was like telling this story because he thought like, oh, I have an indigenous person sitting in front of me. So like, let me share this history. And I feel like that seems even more inappropriate. (laughs) (laughs) So at the end of his like story, he's like, you know, I know you can tell that I'm a history buff. So I just want to ask you, like, what's your nationality? Like, where are you from? And I'm like, here we go. Like, Uh suspicions confirmed. Like, this dude really wanted to tell me this story because he thought this. And I was just so, like, annoyed and disturbed at this point that I just was straight up, like, I'm black. Mm -hmm. And he, I mean, immediately, like, shut down, got Mm -hmm. really uncomfortable, the wine tasting had ended at that point and he basically just like ran out of the room and left us there. And I was like, this dude is so racist. Uh, it was, wow. yeah, it was one of the, the more extreme uh, experiences I had because it was like, oh, if you think I'm like something that will help you enhance your like colonial story, it's mm-hmm. acceptable. But like, 
the moment I tell you what I actually am, you're like, you don't want me on your land and don't want to be um, engaged with us anymore. So, yeah. yeah. And what was his of- intention, like, of even telling that? Like, what were you going to say at the end? Like, oh, thank you, history buff. <laughs> thank you so right? much. Thank you so much. <laughs> yeah, thank you for schooling yeah. me on that. I don't think he's uh, a rational dude. (laughs) Yeah, Yeah. that's true. That is true. Right. Yeah, I mean, it's. I think it is pretty wild how sometimes that discomfort or straight-up racism, how it actually manifests in conversations Mm -hmm. or interactions with people Mm -hmm. um, as, like, dropping knowledge on you or mansplaining or just Mm -hmm. straight-up, like, not knowing how to it sounds like he didn't even really it sounds like he just went into flight (laughs) probably (laughs) did not know how to handle that moment yeah Mm -hmm. yeah so you mentioned that you are from Ohio and then spent some time in California and now you're in Portland right yes Mm -hmm. yeah talk us through um talk us through those like the experience of race and place um you know, yeah I know my experiences living on the east coast are really different than when I moved to Eugene and so I'm mm-hmm. curious what you experienced oh absolutely um I mean to to put it plainly uh my experience on the west coast has been significantly more um difficult in terms of experiences with racism than when I lived in the midwest um So, you know, I'm from Ohio and I feel like Ohio does get like this reputation for being like a Republican, uh, like farmer boy (laughs) kind of state, but Mm -hmm. not all of Ohio is like that. And it really does depend on where you are. And so uh, I'm from Columbus. And when I lived there, I actually was surrounded by uh, a lot of black people. Like my community was primarily black people. Um, the high school I went to was mostly black. My friends were mostly black. You could find like black owned yoga studios and like juice places. Um, it was amazing. And so I felt like when I moved to the West coast, uh, it's just a totally different vibe. Like you really feel Um, people within the community specifically, like having to um, like prove themselves or kind of like being on the defense or very guarded and for good reason, because the racism out here is so much more intense. And I remember, um, you know, even when I, it wasn't until I moved to Portland that I even became super familiar with the term BIPOC. And, you know, I'm like, like, where did this term even come from? Like, yeah, why are we all using this like handful of letters to identify a like very diverse and different like group of people, (laughs) you Mm -hmm. know, like so many people that are being categorized as BIPOC are like just so different. And so I, I found it to be really, uh, really strange and you know, the racism factor was just kind of off the charts. Like when I lived in California, there were, there was this group of white women who were horrible to me. I mean, it was to the point where there was of course like one ringleader and then like four or five other white women that just kind of like played along. 
Hmm. But they would do things like, well, um, one of them was my partner's roommate. So I had to interact with them like often, Hmm. but they would do things like, um, you know, we wouldn't get invited to the house parties or we would be excluded from dinner invitations out. Um, they refused to eat anything that I made. I mean, it was like what wild. Yeah. Like I would, you know, I love to cook. I love to bake. So I was mm-hmm. like, make some like bomb ass shit. And sure. they would not eat it. Like they just kind of like, they wouldn't even touch it. And I think my worst experience on the West Coast with this specific this specific group of white women was um, we had paid to go to this like fish dinner that one of the woman's um, partners, like she, he was a fisherman. And, you know, for me, it's like, oh, I'm on the West Coast and get to have like fish straight from the sea. Like, cool. <laughs> like that yeah, wasn't experience yeah. to have. back in Ohio. And so, you know, like I paid to be at this dinner. And then when it came to actually like serving the food, he skipped my plate. Like I am not kidding y'all. This, (laughs) he skipped my plate. Yeah. That's insane. That's wild. I'm so sorry. Yeah. That's so painful to Mm -hmm. just be so invisible in that way. Yeah. Mm Mm-hmm. And so you mentioned or that you didn't. Invisibilized. Yeah. Right? Invis- oh, yeah. Invisibilized. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, you mentioned that then you didn't stay in California too long and then you moved to, to Portland. Did you find it was different or a, just a different version of what you had experienced in California? Yeah. I mean, Portland is a different version. Um, mm-hmm. <laughs> it's like, I felt like California was more. Uh, uh, violent, like mm. the, um, you know, the things like skipping my plate and just really, uh, really making people making an effort to disclude me, I guess is, yeah. was like mm. a lot more, uh, prevalent there. But I feel like in, in Oregon, my experience has been that it's a lot more, um, the racism is a lot more performative. And it's a lot more um, insidious, but still very present and equally as harmful. What 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 did like what comes to mind for you when you um, think about like performative? You said performative racism or like performative allyship as yeah. a form of racism. Yes. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah. I would say performative allyship for sure. So, um, you know, I feel like 2020 was like a really weird time for a lot of people who identify as black or biracial black. Mm -hmm. So, you know, up until 2020, I had been just kind of minding my own business, like working as a flower farmer and as the kind of like racial tension was building up in 2020. um, And of course, after George Floyd was murdered, I gained like thousands of followers over Instagram. Mm. People suddenly wanted to like buy all of my flowers. Um, Suddenly these like white people and like big name white florists who like 
I had been trying to get the attention of for like years prior to 2020 mm-hmm. were suddenly interested in what I was doing and what it what I was creating and you know it felt really disappointing to me honestly like I feel like first of all like being biracial or multiracial really means needing to have a certain amount of self-awareness around um like what spaces are and are not appropriate to be present Mm -hmm. in um and I think that 2020 was supposed to be about elevating awareness around like police murder and violence directed Mm -hmm. towards black people and so you know for me it's like while yes I am black I also have a lot of privilege in looking the way that I look you know like I'm lighter skinned and like white people don't always automatically first automatically or first um assume that I'm black so you know police violence isn't something that I consider a daily threat to my life Mm -hmm. and you know I felt like in 2020 it was like suddenly all of these white people were looking to me um and a lot of other people who identified as black for answers about you know what to do and suddenly it became my job to like educate uh white folks about you know why black lives mattered Mm -hmm. um And I got so many emails and Instagram DMs about like requests to take part in commercials and like blog posts and magazines. And I just thought, you know, like these people are really missing the point and like really missing what this moment is about. Um, I really just felt like a lot of these white people kind of like singled me out as like, the most palatable black person that they could find to like Mm. feature in their magazine. And, you know, so I, I didn't take any media requests and I still really don't from white people because I feel like making me the face of those, you know, (laughs) bogus diversity campaigns is not Mm. doing anything to fight white supremacy And um, it just is not a space that I felt comfortable taking up. But Mm -hmm. it's been really interesting to observe how, you know, now that we're two years past the hype of 2020, it's like all of that kind of like business and messages and everything else just like completely dissipated. And so it's like, Mm. I think to me, I've seen a lot in Portland where people just... um, show up for the hype, but don't actually want to do the work. How did you navigate all of that, like, influx of ignorance, like, during a time where, like, you're yourself are processing, like, horrific things that are happening to your community? Like, did that take a toll on your your mental health? Like, how, how was that time? Yeah, I mean, it definitely did. I felt like, you know, at first, I tried to educate people. Um, but that very quickly became toxic because Mm -hmm. I realized I was just putting in so much effort and work to try to get people to see, um, their own racism and Mm -hmm. they weren't open for that. You know, like they weren't Mm -hmm. here for that. They were just like, I've got the, (laughs) I've got the sign in my yard and like, I've sent you a DM and that's all the work I want to do, you know? Um, And it's actually crazy because I remember 
when I first moved to Portland and I saw all of the like Black Lives Matter signs, I wasn't, you know, I had no context of the history of Portland when I first moved here or anything. Mm-hmm. So I just mm-hmm. thought like, oh, like, okay, these people like really have an understanding of what's going on in the world. And like coming from where I came from, I'm like, this is awesome. Mm-hmm. Right. And then, you know, I lived here for a week and was like, oh, this is, <laughs> this is profound. <laughs> it was yeah. literally a week. <laughs> like the optics of it versus like, do you know the history of North Portland? Do yes. you know about Vanport City? Do you know about like our history of exclusion policies? Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. it's like yeah. a facade. Mm-hmm. Yeah. To, to what's deeper. <laughs> so you, Ellen, you mentioned like, oh, people just kind of want to sit with me as a black person to basically like be a little bit of a vampire, like kind of like, mm-hmm. right? Like sucking that energy that like, you know, your experience like from you without much reciprocity, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and that like you noticed that they didn't want to do like the work. Can you can you talk about like what the work looks like from your perspective? Yeah. Um, I feel like the work is understand is having white people understand the role that they play in perpetuating white supremacy. Right. Um, Mm -hmm. It's, you know, taking inventory of their lives and learning to be self-aware and understanding that most white people have done something harmful to people of color at one point in their lives. And I think for me, it's about the willingness to unpack those things, to look at those things, um, and to take actionable steps in whatever means feels right for them and like their own journey with that, mm-hmm. um, to dismantle like the systems of oppression that we are facing today. Mm-hmm. I think a lot yeah. of white people get lost in like the action piece of like, you know, what do I do? Uh, what do I say? And like, also I think that from my perspective anyway, people of color are really tired of like attempting to give white people those answers. Yeah. It makes me think of um, like, I always say her name wrong, but Tima Okun, it's like T-E-M-A and then O-K-U-N, the like characteristics of white supremacy. And there are these Mm -hmm things that are so insidious like perfectionism right um that it's it's not always about these grand violent racist overt gestures Mm -hmm. that create spaces that are not safe it's also in the subtle things Mm -hmm. um in our relationships that perpetuate white supremacy and even you know for myself growing up in growing up in Oregon, growing up in the world have internalized white supremacy also. Yeah. Um, that it's also my work to sit with notice shift. Um, does that, is that something that like having like, I know you said you grew up in, in mostly black communities. 
Is that something that you feel internally ever having a white mother or growing up in just America? (laughs) Totally. Yeah. I think for me, it shows up in the ways that I like almost compare myself to other people of color. Um, I feel like, you know, our communities do this a lot where it's like, um, oh, like this person looks like this, they're too little or too much of this, or I'm too little or too much Mm -hmm. of this. And um, it's really sad because I feel like that's exactly what white people want us to do. Um, And I feel like it really inhibits connection um, across our communities. Um, And many of us, like our lineage, our ancestry is like, we're meant to be in community. We're meant to be with one another. And um, I just feel like a lot of us struggle so much with internalized white supremacy that it really does keep us connected. And so it's something that I am trying to be like actively mindful of on a daily basis. Mm, Definitely. Yeah. We've been talking about that a lot on the pod, just like feeling not enough Mm-hmm. Um, of either one half or the other and like trying to find the belonging um, within our community or within ourself. Um, do you feel like you experienced that either living, growing up where in Ohio or even here? Yeah. So there was actually a situation, this was probably like six months ago or so, um, So I am currently in graduate school for uh, social work so that I can um, get clinical licensure and practice as an independent therapist. And um, I was looking for a field placement and it was important to me that I be somewhere with um, black people um, and also diversity just in general. And so, as you can imagine, that was incredibly difficult here in Mm -hmm. Portland. And um, I was speaking to my own therapist about this, actually, who is also a Black woman. And so she recommended a place to me. And I, like, had kind of like a phone interview with this place and was really excited. It is an organization that um, serves mostly Black people, and there are mostly black people on the staff, but I had this feeling of, you know, am I black enough to work here? Like Mm -hmm. I really wrestled with, is it appropriate for me to work here when, you know, they are the clients who go there are looking for providers who look like them. Um, Mm -hmm. And I really struggled with this feeling of like, do I look enough like them? Um, is it appropriate for me to be in this space? And I ultimately decided that it was not. Um, but that's something that I really wrestled with and really struggled with in terms of like that enoughness piece. Yeah. Um, so yeah, that is super real. And like, I feel like every day I go back and forth with like, am I enough of this? Am I enough of that? Um, Yeah. Yeah. And do you, I feel like I feel that so much. Um, (laughs) And I, and I also have noticed the ways in which that 
filters into all of these other aspects of my life. Mm-hmm. Do, do you experience that as well where it's like it, it's it's like doesn't even necessarily become about racial identity. It's just like a sense of not being enough in other, like in other ways. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I like at this point in my life have been doing a lot of healing work around being enough and um, like living authentically to who I am and, you know, letting go of a lot of the facades that I feel like we all put on, but especially as biracial people trying to navigate two different racial identities, um, it can just be really difficult. So yeah, I, I definitely relate to, to what you were saying there. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Um, you mentioned that you are um, a graduate student. Um, can you talk a little bit more about um, like your mental health like journey and kind of what community you've seen, at least here in Portland, when it comes to mental health and like your career goals as well for that? Yeah. Um, so I, when I lived in Ohio, I actually worked as a licensed social worker. Um, licensure requirements are very different state to state. So I was able to be licensed there, but I am not licensed here in Oregon, um, yet. (laughs) So, um, back when I lived in Ohio, I worked on a behavioral health, um, or for a behavioral health agency that primarily, um, saw clients who were struggling with substance misuse and um, just very um, severe mental health disorders. And a lot of those clients were um, Black. Uh, Yeah, I would say at that time, my clients were mostly Black. Um, But then, of course, like, we accepted everyone. So I had, like, a pretty diverse caseload in general. Um. And now that I live in Oregon, I am currently doing field hours um, at an agency here. And I won't say which one, but it the staff is entirely white and the clients are mostly white as well. And while they definitely like need mental health help too, it's just a totally different uh, experience. Hmm. Do you, do you want to share more about what's different about it or some stories that come to mind to you that exemplify that experience of difference? Yeah. Um, so it's just, it's very important when, I guess when, so I feel like where this is like ultimately going is the differences between cultural competency and cultural humility. So um, I feel like cultural competence is kind of like a buzz phrase in social work. And for a while, it kind of suggested that to be culturally competent meant to be able to work like effectively with people across different cultures. Mm -hmm. And I think The problem with this phrase is that not many social workers uh, really receive any type of extensive cultural competency training. Mm -hmm. And, you know, it's like you go to a training for four hours and then like suddenly you're considered culturally competent. (laughs) 
<laughs> just ignoring like yeah. every year that you've lived a life that socialized you differently. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And so it's like the majority of social work providers are white. So um, it's just not realistic to, to think that white people are suddenly capable of understanding and conceptualizing the needs of a diverse group of people across all, all, all cultures. It's just not possible. And so to me, you know, I think that especially mental health providers need to be more curious and like cultural, culturally humble. So like, Cultural humility suggests that, um, you know, we ask clients what something means means to them from their own Mm -hmm. cultural perspective instead of assuming what what that meaning holds to someone, Mm -hmm. Um, you know. And so fairly recently, uh, I had this experience where I was uh, at an agency under this white clinician and she was someone who claimed to be a culturally competent provider and was providing services primarily to black clients who experienced trauma. I got to sit in on one of her sessions and um, a few of the black women there were expressing how they wanted to pay respects to Black History Month in the form of like a group presentation for other clients. Um, you know, and the clinician agreed to the idea, but when the clients finished the session and just kind of like left the room, this clinician looked at me and was like, I don't understand why black people get a month. Like, I think the idea is stupid. White people don't get a month. Oh gosh. (laughs) And I'm just sitting here like, okay, so like, this is a clinician who says that she's culturally competent. And this is also a clinician who doesn't know that I'm black. And Mm. she just showed her racism, like, to my face. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And so I had to inform her, you know, of the fact that, like, hey, I'm Black. And, like, while I'm here, let me explain why Black History Month is an important time to celebrate for your clients. And so Mm. I think, like, going back to cultural competence versus cultural humility, it's like, had that clinician been culturally humble, she could have asked those clients what Black History Month meant to them. And she could have Mm -hmm. asked why it was important for them to speak about it to the group, you know? Instead, she just kind of like made assumptions, um, not only about like what Black History Month means to them, but also like she made an incorrect assumption about her own ability to be culturally competent. Mm -hmm. Mm And so, you know, to me, that's why it's so important to ask questions when we don't know or understand something. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And how, like, I don't know, disheartening for you to experience, like, her seemingly um, act one way in front of clients who... And then in, in in the next breath... Mm-hmm. not even bad an eye about being racist. It's like, yeah. oh no, she is in charge of giving 
advice and ah what yeah. <laughs> it's scary and you know of course I never got invited to sit in on a session again after that and that's fine because mm-hmm. I'm like I don't want to be around that you know but I feel like it's just so important when people of color are looking for therapists to really have someone that either looks like them or shares lived experience or is self-aware and culturally humble. And, you Mm -hmm. know, I think it's important for us if we are going to um, have white therapists, because sometimes really, unfortunately, sometimes it's unavoidable in certain settings Mm -hmm. um, that we like check in with that provider and like, ask questions because it's, you know, there's a lot of people out there who think they're culturally competent and they just aren't at all. Mm -hmm. Yeah. It doesn't get done by sitting through one training, right? It doesn't get done by sitting through a weekend retreat or having a circle with your white friends one time or a book club. Mm -hmm. It's not, it's not a switch that you just get to kind of like, turn on for a while get charged up and then like you're good to go it's like Mm -hmm. constant constant attention attunement awareness and curiosity I think I think that's so um, poignant what you said about curiosity and questions Mm -hmm. I feel like that is rampant in pretty much every community (laughs) right now to be honest just kind of like a lack of curiosity about where another person is sitting yes um how do you see us moving towards a more curious way of being together um what does that what does that look like for you or what would it look like for you yeah I feel like um Ooh, it's like we kind of have to reset the standards of what it means to um, engage with clients or engage with people who are different than you. Because I think right now it's we're just checking a lot of like archaic boxes and going through emotions <laughs> of like what something should look like or, you know, what something should mean and um nobody's asking questions about what Mm -hmm. what something means to the person who's actually affected and so you know for me I kind of feel like we have to shift towards um letting go of shame a bit and like admitting when we don't know something Mm -hmm. and being willing to engage and be open and just ask questions Mm -hmm. yeah yeah I think that 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 kind of unmetabolized or even unacknowledged shame and guilt um, really kind of keeps us in these spaces of wanting to have the answers all the time, (laughs) right? Um, And Mm -hmm. I think when we talk about cultural humility, what we're saying is like, there's, like, I basically know nothing outside of my own skin. Yeah. Like, I know nothing outside (laughs) Mm -hmm. of my own skin. Mm -hmm. Um, And yeah. So, yeah, thank you for raising that. Um, yeah. 
totally that curiosity seed (laughs) yeah you know and it's it's crazy because just the other day um so I helped to run like seven um group therapy sessions a week and uh in one of my groups right now we have a client who is um from Israel and you know her culture is very different than my own or and very different than um a lot of our group members and so we um we use this um kind of like therapy method it's called DBT or dialectical behavioral mm-hmm. therapy yeah and a lot of the um skills and the teachings of this therapy she doesn't resonate with because uh you know, for her, it doesn't make sense culturally. So, you know, the other day, uh, the group leader was kind of teaching about uh, validation and the importance of validation. And, you know, this, this woman had just kind of raised her hand and was like, validation doesn't make sense to me, because that's not something that's a part of our culture. And, Mm -hmm you know, the therapist who happened to be white was just kind of like, oh, cool. Like, thanks for letting me know. And like kept it moving. But I kind of had to like work backwards. And I was like, you know, like, I'm actually curious about that. Like, um, I know you said that validation isn't something that's part of your culture. And so I'm wondering, how do you know when someone cares about you? Um, Mm. how do you know when someone is, um, you know, wanting to gauge, engage with you in like a conversation that's reciprocal. How do you feel encouragement in your own cultural context? And it's like, Mm. those are the things that we can ask, you know, like we didn't need to know like what that meant from her for her automatically, but it's like just asking a couple, a, a couple of questions really cleared it up. And, you know, I felt like afterwards she felt like, seen and felt like she could express like who she was and it's just so important Mm -hmm. and thank you so much for that example and and you all learned something right yes yeah yeah I know I think a lot about too like the curiosity I've had to had have internally as well like, mm-hmm. why do I do that thing? Like, I, <laughs> yeah. I went through a whole phase looking back on some of my teaching where I was like, why did I push my students so hard? Mm-hmm. What was going on there? You know, mm-hmm. and, you know, the answer is it's actually just like some internalized white supremacy and capitalism. Mm-hmm. But like, um, yeah, I like there's I think some of those like discoveries can happen inside, too. We can practice in both spaces. Mm-hmm. 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 Yeah, definitely. Mm-hmm. Um, if it's okay with you, Ellen, I kind of wanted to ask you a little bit about um, your flower farming and uh, what that looks like for your life and what the community has kind of been like. You shared a little bit about it earlier, but I'd love to hear more. Yeah. Um, so yes, I have a little flower business and <laughs> I have been uh, growing flowers on and off for uh, like seven or eight years at this point. Um, and I, I love the flowers. They're just 
so beautiful and like really give me hope. <laughs> I know as I hear you talking about it, I'm just like, we, yeah. you know, we just turned the corner to spring. So I'm like, yeah. yes, please talk yeah. about the flowers. Yeah. Um, but it's, you know, it's uh, farming is like a whole other uh, beast, both physically, but also when we're talking about uh, racial identity, um, you know, there is, so I guess my experience has been that, uh, you know, I've only ever worked for white people in farming because access to land um, mm. is uh, very difficult. Access to resources, like when you are of a marginalized population, it's like you just don't have like a family that has, you know, this farmland that they could pass on to you for like 20 generations. And, you, mm -hmm. you know, maybe some of us do, but like not the majority of us. And so um, the farming world is very white. The florist world is very white. Um, and it's been a challenge, but I think at this point in my life, I'm really happy that I have a space just in my yard that I can grow enough flowers to, um, you know, like provide for myself in some ways. And it's like, no, I don't have land. I'm just renting this house, <laughs> but mm -hmm. you can grow hundreds of flowers, um, in a very small space. And so it's been mm -hmm. really, really fun to be able to make little arrangements for people and like just apothecary things. And, um, it's been like a great source of joy for me mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. yay yeah <laughs> what do you uh, what do you learn from the flowers Ellen about like ways of being in the world like, what do the flowers teach you <laughs> wow so much so so much um you know even so I have tulips growing right now and even the fact that you have to plant them you know, in the winter, like we planted these bulbs back in October and they are not blooming until just now. And so it's like flowers give me perspective around time. Um, mm -hmm. Within capitalism, I feel like things happen so fast and at a rapid pace and mm -hmm. the flowers really remind me to slow down um, and also to be present because, you know, their blooms are fleeting. And so mm -hmm. there's only a very short window of time where they're in like their full glory. And so it's like seeing the flowers just like show up and show up as their fullest selves after having enough time to get there is like, right. Like we don't need to be rushing around. Yay. Like this yeah. flowers yeah. bloom took like nine months. So like we can chill. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's like making me feel really emotional mm -hmm. um just this idea that like we will naturally emerge yes mm -hmm. and what <laughs> that's six shaking her body um <laughs> but like what could be possible when we allow ourselves to naturally emerge within the patterns of the natural world mm -hmm. and not as a cog in a in a system that doesn't care about us. Yeah. Right? Designed design um, not to care. Design not to care about us. Yeah. Mm -hmm. mm, tulips. 
They're so good. <laughs> They're so good. Yeah. <laughs> um, Ellen, I'd love to hear you talk about um I, I'd love to hear you talk about like I'm thinking about healing justice land. Um like where people all people who need access to healing have access to healing Mm -hmm. um what what do you imagine like what's a what's a vision that you have where that can be possible oh man um you know I think because I work in the mental health uh, field. This is something that I think a lot about. Um, It's, I feel like specifically with therapy, it's either, um, you know, you have a therapist who doesn't take insurance and you're paying like $120 an hour, Mm -hmm. or um, you have a therapist who does take insurance, but the wait list is really long or you can't get in when you need to. And, and so I just would really love to see a world where wellness uh, services like therapy, um, like, you know, flower essences, uh, like herbalism um, was just kind of like a part of our society. Um, Mm. I know, I think it was last year, um, Congress had passed this bill. It's called uh, Pursuing Equity in Mental Health. And they, you know, the intention of the bill was that um, it would provide equity <laughs> in mm-hmm. mental health because mostly um, mental health services so far have been accessible to white folks or people with uh, resource privilege only. And so the intention of the bill was to close that gap. But um, when you actually read it, it does not include any type of financial subsidies for people who are um, wanting access to mental health care and aren't able to get it. You know, a lot of the bill was about (laughs) providing cultural competency trainings. (laughs) And so Mm. I just kind of want to like get rid of the idea that training people is enough. Like Mm -hmm. I want to get to a space where it's like, yeah, you know, mental uh health care is just a part of our society it's we have a budget for it or it's here in the form of subsidies for people who need it um mm-hmm. yeah that was kind of a long answer and i hope i answered no the it's question. no yeah no it's <laughs> great I, I loved hearing you talk about that yeah it makes me think a lot about like workspaces yeah too because mm-hmm. that's kind of that's kind of the place where we are in pods Mm -hmm. right I mean most of us and so yeah how can we create more mm, pathways in to wellness real Mm -hmm. wellness like Mm -hmm. radical wellness yeah Um, yeah yeah and it's so tough too because I feel like at the end of the day like we really just have to get rid of capitalism (laughs) 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 you know yeah, wait, say, say more about that. Like, say more. I want to hear you talk more about that. Well, it's just like, you know, when I think about wellness, like, you know, you can obviously think about things like mental health, uh, like therapy or, um, you know, like little self-care treats, uh, whatever that might be for you. But a lot mm-hmm. of those things cost money. And 
it's like, (laughs) we can't be mad at that. Like we can't be mad at people like having to charge fees or like having to charge money for like wellness services because that Mm -hmm. that's the system that we live in right now. And it's like, we can't ask folks to work for free um, all the time, but it just kind of illustrates that like, if we want wellness to truly be equitable, if we want wellness to be truly accessible, then like we need to figure out a different exchange outside of money, um, outside of financial capabilities that will allow people to connect with the wellness to connect with wellness in ways that feels, um, you know, comfortable and fun to them. Like wellness Mm -hmm. shouldn't be just people who have money um, able Mm -hmm. to like go to acupuncture and get me massages and Mm -hmm. uh, go to therapy every week. Uh, So it's like, yeah, if anyone has an idea out there about uh, (laughs) what we can do, hit me up. Yeah. Yeah, Right on in. (laughs) It reminds me of this book I just read that a dear friend, mentor, and healer gifted me. It's called Psalm for the Wild, built by Becky Chambers. And it's like set hundreds of years in the future, but it's about a tea monk who basically bikes around in this like buggy and gives offers tea to members of the community and then Mm -hmm. just offers an ear and listens but they're like trained in this they come up through this over time and it's just like this if you feel if you need like um a vision for a hopeful future it's such a great book to read because you're just like oh (laughs) like things can evolve in a different Mm -hmm. way than just demise Mm yeah Yeah. (laughs) right like um and maybe maybe there needs to be like destruction first before Mm -hmm. something else can emerge right i'm not saying that it just looks utopic the whole time Mm -hmm. we move through change but yeah um what do these look like what are these visions what could they be right Mm -hmm. i love that i'm gonna look that book up after this yeah me too Mm -hmm. sounds great (laughs) It just came uh, to mind when you were like, if anybody has any ideas, I'm like, thank you. Anybody has an idea? <laughs> <laughs> uh, oh. Thank you for listening to Living Two or More. Make sure to follow us on Instagram at Living Two or More. If you have any comments or questions, we would love to hear from you. Reach out to us at Living Two or More Podcast at gmail.com. Thanks.